This is the Water Cooler Podcast, coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney. Hello, I'm Nick Cater and uh, welcome to the MRC Podcast. Uh, during this uh, COVID-19 crisis or series of rolling crises as we come to think of it, uh, we've been trying to unpack uh, some of the deeper elements behind it, what's really going on, how people's lives are changing, perhaps how their minds are changing over this. So I'm delighted today to welcome to the studio somebody with deep professional knowledge of, of how people's minds react in various circumstances, but also somebody who has a, a very deep and clear understanding, I think, of some of the modern trends in thought and culture and politics. So it's a great pleasure to welcome Tanvir Ahmed. Great to be with you and with and with Menzies. Thank you. And uh, we'll be talking about your new book with its startling cover, In Defence of Shame. But first, let's go to the COVID-19 crisis. You're a psychiatrist professionally. You, you see patients as your day job. Are you detecting, are you seeing in that any new anxieties or moods developing? I've seen a range of trends, Nick. I think the coronavirus is interesting because it's a shared threat. Prior to that, I think we'd get lots of different patients. Uh, you know, anxiety is probably the most common presentation, but anxiety is often a surface thing. Underneath that, there'll be various other um, problems, especially if they're coming to a psychiatrist. So I think in the past, we had lots of individualised presentations with people come with their own specific fears, and, and that could be anything. It could be crossing the road. It could be some sort of phobia. It could be climate change. It could be a host of things. It could be Muslims. It could be, it could be anything. Uh, it could be political. Or often it wasn't political. Um, whereas coronavirus is, I think, for, for one of the rare times in modern Western societies, particularly modern Western multicultural societies, where we've become increasingly diverse, we have a kind of urban anonymity, we're sort of anonymously living in a privatised suburbia, we actually have a shared threat and almost a shared sort of public health morality. I mean, sometimes I think there's certainly disagreements and contestations there, but we do have a kind of we're all living in a public health version of morality, and that is quite uh, relevant for shame because shame is partly about our relationship to groups uh, enforcing that through a shared set of values. So I think suddenly uh, the pandemic has brought things like public shaming to the fore. A good example recently, uh, Nick, in Australia at least, is um, the two African girls, well, Australian-African girls, who I guess deceitfully returned to Queensland from Victoria and their front, page, uh, front pages were plastered on the Courier Mail, uh, which wasn't really that uh, incredible. Like often people were committing crimes and this was a fairly uh, unique crime uh, given our times. So there was a lot of blowback there, partly because of their colour, their skin colour is sort of seen as racist and their age to some extent. And I guess that, that immediately brings the question, is this appropriate? But I do think in, in this sort of situation, there is a utility there in terms of reintegrating a whole set of people into certain expectations of behaviour. Because we're, we're kind of resetting expectations of behaviour and where the potential costs are catastrophic, uh, I think there is a case for shaming. But one of the key points I make in the book, there's a healthy shaming and an unhealthy shaming. And healthy shaming is a brief period of stigma then combined with the ritual of reintegration. And I think this is something that in Western societies particularly, we've, uh, we've either lost the art of 
or stigmatize shame, shame so much that we haven't learned to harness it in kind of healthy or appropriate ways. This book um, is one that invites us, I think, to go down many byways along the way, and you're, you're inviting me to do that, so let's do that. Let's first start with the idea of guilt, uh, which I associate with Christianity. And the great positive about guilt, it seems to me, yeah, at least guilt in it, in the sense that you're, you're, you're blaming yourself, you're looking inwards. It, it becomes a very constructive emotion in that you, if you identify your own failings and you're the one who's responsible for them, you then have, have a, a, a way to put those right. Uh, the opposite, which is an outward blaming guilt, where the guilt is, um, you know, I only did this because my neighbour did X. That leads to a sense of fatalism, also hostility and destructive to the social fabric, which is why I think that guilt has, has proved to be such a positive emotion and led to a very dynamic outcomes. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think for the most part I would agree. I think guilt is, is very useful in that. And again, guilt goes into, you know, very much so with the idea of the individual. But guilt also, when you take guilt all the way down, it also touches on one of our biggest challenges, where we live in societies where... We have a concept of the individual tied uh, in a civic way to the state, yet people yearn for groups, and we're trying to work out how to healthily harness that yearning. And we've had the big tent poles, if you like, Nick, like um, Nick, um, like religion and nationalism become weaker. So now people are yearning for groups in in alternative ways. We often, you know, we often uh, talk about the um, the negatives of say identity politics, but that's again is a yearning for a group. And to some extent, I think that's one of the things we really struggle with, how to accommodate groups. And arguably, guilt, when you take it all the way down, almost, almost reaches that stage where people are left isolated and alone in a way. If guilt alone potentially takes the path of kind of the, arguably the worst bits of liberalism where people are kind of less as autonomous individuals, not wanting to do harm, but they're kind of isolated and without kind of clear purpose. I, I suppose I come at it from an opposite perspective as a, uh, as, as a sociologist, where we start with the group and work to the individual. So in the framing of Emil Durkheim, there is no such thing as individual opinions. Everything we have, all our values, what we consider to be a correct or incorrect way to behave, we derive from group structures. So... Perhaps uh, if you start from that perspective, some of this perhaps isn't quite so surprising, particularly shame as a way of showing when somebody's transgressed the line and a warning to others not to do so. Well, the other thing, one of the things I touch on, I mean, even though that my title is provocative uh, in terms of in defence of shame, I'm not necessarily shame, I'm not necessarily arguing that shame is, or is necessarily positive, but I am arguing, you know, I think we view ourselves as a guilt-based society. But I'm arguing that shame is often lurking in, in a range of ways. And I'll give you an example. One of the typical disorders I see, Nick, is social anxiety. And I think it's rife in the modern Western world uh, because, hey, we're often, uh, you know, many people living alone, not necessarily minimal ties to communal groups often uh, or communal traditions. But not only that, we also, also live in a world increasingly knitted together by social media. So often people live in imagined groups, and this is a concept I bring up. People live in imagined groups, but they often in avoidance. They're in states of avoidance. Now, social anxiety is a, is a medical term, 
essentially alluding to people who are very fearful of any kind of negative scrutiny, very conscious of their place in in hierarchy, uh, in the social hierarchy. And shame is often about feelings of social subordination. But I'm arguing that in a media-rich meritocracy where I guess life's purpose for most people is individual self-fulfilment, just that notion of social anxiety, which sounds medical, is actually a modern form of shame because achievement and, I guess, rising up the meritocracy acquires a moral dimension. So suddenly they're feeling a global attribution, a a kind of a negative, self-conscious global attribution, which is fundamentally shame. But it's it's not something, it's not what we'd call shame. So that's a good example of shame taking on new forms today. For most of history, it was about not fulfilling one's duty. Now, for many people, it's about feeling inadequate or unlovable. And shame, is, of course, now is used quite explicitly as a tool on social media, isn't it? I mean, you get this uh, shaming culture. And uh, it, it's quite pernicious, it seems to me, because it, it's almost guilt without the chance of redemption. You're not allowed, once you're in that shaming stream, you've had it. Uh, you can apologise, you can grovel, and they pile it on more. Well, I think current sort of online shame is a great example of bad shame. Because there's an example where there's no path to reintegration. It's almost entirely about uh, retribution. And it has taken on new forms because we can can scale shame so much now with social media, globalisation. So it has a suddenly enormous power. So suddenly you get this magnification and often fairly minor sins. And it gets magnified dramatically. And then you combine that with sort of be it Google links or be it, um, and I guess to some extent, institutional cowardice. And I think this is another point I'd like to bring up, that increasingly people that are shamed, it's getting harder. Reintegration is such an important part of shaming. Otherwise, shaming loses its utility. And you're left with humiliation and the loss of individual dignity. So uh, as a society, I think we need to get better at thinking of how do we, immediately when there is shaming, we should be immediately thinking of reintegration or at least a path towards that. I'm not sure we're doing that very well for a lot of recent cases right around the world of online shaming. Well, I wish I wish we could, but um, it seems to me the intention is actually to banish these people forever, right? They, they, there's uh, an approach, it's very common now, which seems to interpret people as either good or bad with nothing in between, whereas, of course, in almost every individual we've ever known in history, with the exception of perhaps people like Hitler... Uh, you could have a good good side and a bad side. Well, that's right. I think that's where you touch on the negatives of shame, right? So the reality is if we become entirely tribal group identities, uh, that is a pure shame culture. Now, th- there's, there's no way I'm arguing for a pure shame culture. In some ways, what I'm arguing is there there is actually a place for shame and shame also exists in many places that we're not calling it that or examining it with that element, with that uh, component. And that means where uh, there's a whole sorts of, be it mental health disorders or affiliation that we're missing out upon. Um, So I think your point around, back to the online shaming, yeah, often that is about retribution. It's about the good and bad, yeah, are simplistic forms of morality, lacking depth. But also, so while I'm not a practising Christian, I think certainly some people would say, well, as a society, we're losing concepts of sin and forgiveness. 
And if you don't have concepts of sin and forgiveness, not only is guilt under threat to some extent, but certainly forgiveness and reintegration. Like reintegration is all about forgiveness. So if you lose that concept, then you do get a much more primitive retrib- retributional form of shaming. Yeah, and, and look, what, what, what worries me, and it emerges in all sorts of forms now, is uh, this sense of fatalism that's creeping into our, our society. The, the, the idea that uh, I can't do anything to improve my life uh, and I can't do anything to make my life worse. You know, uh, it's, it's a sort of attitude that, that permeates a, a voodoo culture, for instance, where everything depends on whether the, the spirits, the evil spirits, love you or hate you. Now, and you can't do anything about that. Now, we're in that position, right? So if what we shame without the opportunity for redemption says, well, you know, you've had it. And, and, and we see it increasingly in this idea of identity politics. You know, I, I as, a, as a white male, uh, can never shake off the, uh, the, the stigma that goes with being a white male. I, I, I am, as a white male, naturally racist and, and irredeemable. Nick, you have nothing to offer. No, no. <laughs> uh, whereas you're, you know, you're... you're You've got a few greater claims to virtue by nature of your biological background, and that—that—that's that, not only is that absurd. Not only is it a return to these primitive ideas of uh, of uh, of eugenics, which permeated society for far too long, but but it's also desperately unhelpful because if you're robbed of, if you can't, if you can never redeem yourself, there's never a chance for self improvement, and therefore you know society kind of grinds to a halt. Well, what you're alluding to, I mean, uh, even though I'm of a Bangladeshi Muslim background, but growing up in Australia, but if I'm, many people will view me as, uh, you know, erring on the conservative, and that nullifies any of those things. <laughs> so a bit like what was said about Peter Thiel, okay? he may have sex with men, but that doesn't make him gay <laughs> because of his conservative views. But what you're alluding to, I think, is very interesting, some of the trends, and it goes overlaps with online shaming. And this very much overlaps with my work. I'm very interested in this trend of psychological harm and the rise of psychological harm in public debates. Now, obviously, my day-to-day is often leading thinking about psychological harm, but often thinking about causation. What's the cause of the psychological harm? Is it something innate to the person? Has it got more to do with external factors? I think we've had this big shift. The very notion of dignity, that's almost been medicalized. That's been medicalized into a notion of psychological harm. And not even psychological harm, it's perceptions of psychological harm. So the groups that sort of rose through the 20th century that we, I guess we gave dignity, say blacks, gays, women, etc. So suddenly now what the big fear is in the public sphere is that they may or may not be psychologically harmed and the perceptions of psychological harm. So that's a huge shift in, in uh, I guess, the, the rights movement, if you like. It's gone away from, say, we want uh, equality in the workplace or in the civic sphere, we want votes. Now the argument is they must be free from psychological harm. And I think that's a very interesting shift. Um, and, and it's often what I assess, Nick. So even early this morning, I was assessing insurance claims where people uh, believe they've been bullied at work or something along those lines and are suffering a disorder. So I do think that's been a shift, and you alluded to that just earlier uh, with your point, where far, people are far more likely to ascribe the blame externally. Uh, and look, there's always a mix. There's always a mix, and I'm not saying people retreat from you know, public causes of, of distress, but I do think increasingly we've had this shift where people 
either feel or perceive a sense of psychological harm and increasingly think that, well, this has been done to me, whereas very often it's related to their own individual um, vulnerabilities. Yeah, and uh, look, uh, maybe I'll just bring this back. We, we are a, a liberal party think tank, and if anybody happens to be listening to the United States, we should say that liberal means the opposite in Australia than it does there. Uh, but as liberals, we firmly believe that the way a society improves is when, in our case, 25 million individuals all try and improve their own lives and collectively that provides the growth, not some great government plan. So having explained that, and, and, and that uh, I don't think I'm breaking a secret to say that that's your perspective on life too. I, I hope so. You stood as a... But, okay, so that's our philosophy that's our philosophy that we apply to politics how does this fatalism this people feeling they can't improve their lives uh, over time as if that spirit is allowed to grow then we are sapping the energy from the liberal project Uh, absolutely no that's the question nick where people do need to feel they're in control of our lives i mean i do think sometimes um you know that can uh, you know, that, that can reach mythical proportions too and it can be unrealistic sometimes. But as a general rule, if you're not in a society where you can feel rise up, you can rise up the ladder, that you have certain traits, that uh, you're not being held down by institutional structures. And I think all of that is, is true in Australia. And, you know, and I say this as someone of an ethnic background. I think all of that is true in Australia in the sense that uh, as an individual, if you work hard, uh, we have all the structures that you can be pulled up and have all these opportunities. Um, but you're right, if people increasingly acquire a mentality, you know, I guess some people would call it a victimhood mentality, and others have written how we've shifted from a dignity-based culture to a victimhood culture. And again, this is something I've seen in my work, Nick, and, I've, I've prob- and to be honest, I think it's something I've only noticed in the past decade or so. So when I was younger and beginning training in mental health, I don't think it was as big a trend. I would say in the last decade or so, there's a much bigger trend of people coming in say, this is my diagnosis, or they'll put it up on their Facebook page. I, you know, I suffer so-and-so. So it's an example of proclaiming your pain now gives you status. So there's an element of status that comes from, I, I'm on the autistic spectrum or I suffer borderline personality disorder. And th- this is just, this is very new. And, and it, part of what I'm alluding to with this book is I'm saying it's a very limited view of identity. So, and my profession arguably has contributed where we've, people have acquired a very medicalized language of describing their internal experience. Um, and as a psychiatrist or psychologist, another point is traditionally, historically, you know, you've had these political tensions of labor versus capital, whereas the average person, the tension they're in is individual v society, like especially in the last sort of half century. Increasingly, people uh, have a moderate interest whether uh, politics can actually improve their lives. Uh, it's probably different right now. You know, it often intrudes in very significant ways. But probably in the last few decades, the way people see them, it's more a tension between individual and society. And that's partly why many values things play out in, in a little bit in, in the consulting room. You know, we see a lot of these value systems um, play out at a, at a day-to-day level. But if increasingly people lack a language for their experience and it's limited to very very kind of a limited almost medicalized terminology they get a far not only do they get a a limited view of, of adversity and suffering 
Uh, they don't have the language for it. They don't have the tools to make sense of it. Then they are limited to a victimhood culture because they, you know, they reach for a diagnosis or something equivalent. And by definition, that implies that the, 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 the issues are, all, are external to be diagnosed and treated. You can approach this from a, a different perspective, this whole idea of identity politics and victimhood. With the decline in religion, people are looking for a sense of identity. They're looking for a belief structure, a sort of uh, something which they can latch onto. And an identity that's based on belonging, that sets you off against others. It worsens this sense of powerlessness, I think. I am this, I will never be anything else. Well, Nick, even though this isn't necessarily a topic I touch on with this book, it overlaps significantly with my previous book, Fragile Nation. And one of the things I wrote about there was, if, you, if we live in this culture where proclaiming pain acquires status, I actually see this in my work at, say, the, at, at this tension between the bottom end of the labour market and the welfare. And I've written about this in some of my columns where arguably now, traditionally there was, a, there was an innate dignity about all kinds of work. Right, But I, I argue that at the bottom end of the labour market now, there is often more status in having a disability <laughs> than going out and getting, say, a job at the bottom end of the labour market and, and, say, maybe doing that and steadily working your way up. So that's an interesting tension where because disability is almost acquired a, almost a certain state, we've, you know, we've destigmatized that, which is, which is very good uh, on, on many levels, but it's almost acquired a status if you're proclaiming victimhood and pain that it's more worthwhile. If you're, if you're on this funny kind of, you're trying to weigh up the pros, benefits, pros, cons of being on, say, a disability pension before trying to get back into work, uh, it tilts the balance in, a, in, in possibly the wrong direction. Uh, I should remind people this is the MRC podcast, me, Nick Cater, and I'm, I'm delighted to have the special guest today, Tanvir Ahmed, uh, yeah, to talk about his book, In Defence of Shame. And, and Tanvir, if, if you leave this interview feeling we haven't covered your book adequately, I, I can only blame you, I can only shame you, because <laughs> you, this book invites so many interesting lines of thought um, that inevitably we're going, uh, we're going to roam far and wide. But let's come back to shame. You mentioned earlier an example of bad shame. Can I put you, try and draw you back to what a good shame is and suggest that maybe this intense, um, that we, we, we tend to uh, in, want to leap, you know, load a huge amount of shame on people responsible for activities that we, we, we just, as a society, consider abhorrent and uh, if they were allowed to roam free would lead to widespread damage of people and communities. And I'm thinking the example of paedophilia, for instance, which is, is something which huge shame applies to people. Um, uh, and uh, is that a good thing that we do that? Uh, and then I've got a follow-up question, but let's first deal with that. Oh, look, absolutely, yeah. I, I think something that is so abhorrent and so catastrophic, I mean... Uh, Absolutely, that that deserves shame because the disincentive for that should be, you know, astronomical. Um, you know, this is a behaviour that nobody can even begin to accept. So it's an example where absolutely, I don't think there's any question there in terms of shaming. But at the same time, our culture and this is the opposite of shaming. We still, well, not only so the opposite, but the good shaming is there's still an innate dignity to this person. So, um, you know, for example, sometimes I do disagree where. You know, pedophiles have to their addresses 
kind of put out or this kind of stuff. And I, there's still an individual, you know, I had to treat pedophiles and, um, and that's, you know, that's very challenging because they're not easy to treat. They're not easy to um, uh, fix if you like. Um, so again, the behavior absolutely needs to be shamed, but uh, this person still has dignity and they deserve that. Uh, of course, the problem with that is it creates a perverse market effect, doesn't it? You know, if if by labelling somebody a paedophile is likely basically to destroy their reputation possibly forever, there becomes a huge incentive for anybody bearing a grudge to use it. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, let's not go into the details of the Pell case, but there's an example where even if the original allegation wasn't driven by that, then certainly the... the the, the zealotry and the rigour with which it was prosecuted by the Victorian police and, and cheered on by, you know, the uh, the godless sections of the media, if you like, illustrates, I think, um, that we have to be very, very careful about uh, allowing that shame to be used as a weapon against people who simply specific. I mean, Pacific associations can be uh, completely catastrophic, and I think that's one. And it is very interesting because we live in such a diverse society. So different groups shame differently. So if you're on the left, you might shame people for political incorrectness. Uh, if you're on the right, maybe you'd shame them for welfare fraud. You know, public health advocates might shame people for obesity or ostracised smokers. And an interesting part of modern society is very little shaming happens around sexuality anymore. So that's a, yeah. that's a, big, that's a big change in how we uh, use or, or abuse shame. Yeah, that, that's interesting. We've almost gone back to uh, a situation perhaps, you know, familiar to people from uh, from the Jewish tradition that we shame around food now, don't we? It's not really, we're more likely to shame people for what they eat. That's true. Well, a lot of our value systems now have started to be channeled through that, that what you eat is a signal in what you might believe, uh, you know, be it vegans or et cetera, and, you know, fake meat or... Or even red meat acquired a sort of conservative flavour that, you know, I'm a red-blooded American male or something along those lines. So that is a very interesting trend where there's a lot more um, shaming around uh, food consumption. And what you, what you wrap your food in, I mean, parents, most parents be familiar with the, the shaming that goes on at schools if you, if you, if you wrap your kids' lunch in plastic, I guess. <laughs> well, again, that's another example of specific groups. So if you're in a, say, let's say an inner city, highly progressive yeah, there'll be elements of shaming around, yeah, exactly, are you adequately sustainable uh, in terms of your um, you know, behaviour? So you're right, this is where all these new types of morality are emerging, filling the space that religion once, uh, once had, and you're getting uh, you know, types of shaming emerging there. So it's an example, I don't necessarily have strong beliefs either way, but it's an example that shame is making, it's always been there and it's re-emerging now because we're basically going through a time in history where everything's up for grabs, right? In terms of moral ideas and value systems, to some extent, it's all up for grabs. So shame is being used in a way as a kind of signal that this is our type of morality or this is what we're after. So we're actually seeing an uprising in shame and arguably a lot of the uprising we're seeing is often unhealthy types of shaming, but it's an example that we're, we're, we're fighting for what value systems we're going to try and build and enforce so it's a very tumultuous phase in that respect. Racism. I mean, we mentioned paedophilia. I'd say racism is, is a close second to a way to damn people. And, and we're sitting in a room with a, a, a cartoon on the wall by our good friend 
the late Bill Leake. He was accused of racism, and we know as friends of his that he took that very, very hard. I mean, he was a man who was pretty bold, didn't mind being called anything, but to be labelled racist, particularly when he was the very opposite, hurt him a lot, didn't it? But Look, I think racism is a great topic to con- consider because, you know, someone of an ethnic background, it was very interesting seeing some studies come out of America where white progressives were more likely to view something as racist more so than, say, Hispanics or blacks were. So you're right, it's one of the worst things you can say to probably an educated white person. So a lot of the racism debates are often about upper whites versus lower whites. So so many of the culture wars are, are often about that. It's more a signal that I'm one of the upper whites and I'm not like one of the lower whites. So that's where it's less about, it's less a signal to people of race or of colour, but more a signal where you stand in the kind of white status hierarchy. Uh, so that's why calling, say, a white progressive a race is one of the worst things you can do. And often that group acquires sensitivities around race disproportionate to what actual people of colour think. <laughs> I suppose I'm in the fortunate position I'm so far that I, I've never faced any strong accusations of racism on that level. I have been accused of being racist in both cases by prominent Indigenous leaders and I brushed both off as just, it was just their rhetoric really. But I, I'm wondering if, if this is now losing its its power. The more it's used, uh, and, and the more it's used so obviously falsely, and, and the notion which is now being actively pushed uh, that the only people that can be racist are white people, and that in the end racism is all about whites and coloured people or black people, uh, and I, I say black deliberately because people from other ethnicities can sort of be victims of racism, but it's not the same racism that you face against black people. So with all the absurdity, that's the logical absurdity that's creeping into this, the fact that you have, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters in Paris openly condemning Jews, uh, you go, well, this is just losing its force. Is it coming to a point, you think, where it'll just be like, you know, water off a duck's back? I hope so. I mean... in some ways, I, I hate the whole, you know, hierarchical uh, idea of, you know, punching up and punching down. Like, I just find that ridiculous where you can't look at a set of ideas and think, you know, look at something objectively. Um, that as soon as you're a white male, as you were alluding to, somehow you, you can't possibly be a victim of anything. You know, you can't be bullied. You can't be attacked because you're a white male. Uh, I find that, you know, really um, uh, ridiculous. Uh, and I think that's, you know, particularly, it certainly happens in race because often you'll have highly, uh, uh, you know, privileged people of, of certain racial groups and they'll they'll use that, you know, victimhood sometimes. I mean, like a lot of do. You certainly with a lot of middle-class women who are often extremely privileged, middle-class white women, you know, who are often the, the uh, vanguard of, say, feminist movements, often they're of enormous privilege, uh, yet... Uh, they'll push the whole, you know, historical uh, victimhood of, of women. And I don't disagree that that was certainly there. But, you know, I wrote a piece once for the Financial Review where I argued you c- I could be a male African refugee up against the daughter of the Prime Minister and in a lot of our current um, uh, selection things, say, in, in di- on, the, on boards, for example, where there's specific diversity targets and also in politics sometimes in pre-selection, the black African refugee 
if they were deemed of equal merit, would lose. <laughs> so that's a great example of how ridiculous some of these things have got to. We might just quickly deal with that because I think this goes to the heart of uh, some of the work we've been doing at the Mentis Research Centre on gender and politics. And uh, uh, we're just about to bring out our third report on that. But we're expanding it more broadly this time to other forms of diversity and not specifically ethnic diversity, which is the one that people jump to immediately, but diversity of backgrounds. I mean, we think it's a wonderful idea to have many people from different backgrounds in Parliament. It would be a better place for it. On that question, how do we deal with this as Liberals? Why do we want that diversity but we don't want quotas? And I think it's a sense that we want equal opportunity. That's in the end it. You know, we're not looking put in some sort of equal quota for this group or the other. We just want to make sure that everybody, whatever background they they come from, feels they can have a go at entering politics. Yeah, not just politics. Like, you know, it's often made in media as well. You want that equality of opportunity. Um, and also, almost, look, I often, I'm often in these debates around media diversity, etc. and at least my experience has been that often people in my background don't choose those paths. Because especially early generation, like for me, someone who's born in Bangladesh, the early generations you pick low, low you'll work very hard academically and you'll often pick low-risk specific careers. For example, I became a doctor uh, and I'm sure that was a, there was a big cultural component there where it was seen as low-risk, it was safe, you didn't necessarily need political or business networks to do well in it. So it was, it was seen as a... And often people of ethnic groups come from places where, you know, the law is shonky or, you know, politics is... You know, people get killed, <laughs> like all this kind of stuff. So they're not seen as, as kind of safe, secure bets. And in my experience, often people in my background just don't see the, the, some many of these things like politics or even high levels of corporate life or media uh, as viable careers or careers um, they can sort of get a leg up necessarily, which I think is completely false. In, in fact, in many respects, I'd say it's the opposite, you know, because certainly where people are... You know, people are looking for it and you stand out, you know, whether you're in business or media. You know, I've had many opportunities because of, of my eth- ethnicity, no question. And my, you know, and, uh, but also that brings new, different ideas and different outlooks. Um, so you do stand out. Uh, so that's where I, I think, yeah, how, how best to do that? I think that there are, there'll be people with better ideas than I have. You often need different entry points. Sometimes the standard path doesn't, the standard door into places doesn't always work. But yeah, in terms of straight out quotas, I think they're just one. They usually attract the most privileged gr- members of that group, whether it's women or ethnic groups. So you ju- you end up selecting for the most privileged members of of th- those specific groups. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's, and I'm certainly the I certainly don't view it, it's. I can't think of examples where you know often any time there's some sort of um, outcome dif- difference, you know, you get these cries of racism, etc. You know, I think that's, you know, I think that's grossly false. In, in my, I don't doubt it exists in, you know, in rare cases, but uh, I don't, th- I don't, I don't think there's there's very little institutional discrimination in Australia. I believe. Let's put you on the spot here. Have you ever felt that your pathway and your path in life has been blocked on the basis of your race? No, I don't think so. I mean, what I would say is there's no question I would experience racism, right? So right through my life, uh, and that would be anywhere. You know, on the cricket field, you know, you, you're, you're attacking people, you know, you call them fat or you call them skinny or you call them black, whatever. So all my, there's no, there's no um, absolutely I would have experienced 
kind of say racial abuse, etc. But I, I, I think I took that as water off a duck's back. Like I, I wouldn't say I was particularly affected by it. And I also think a lot of accusations of racism in Australia is partly about we have an unvarnished kind of character. We're quite blunt. And sometimes people have no intention of being racist, but they might, might allude to someone's race. You know, they go, ah, oh, you know, I don't know, they say, oh, you're, you're Indian looking or something. And people go, oh, why are you... That was, people interpret that. And the other thing is we have different attitudes to hierarchy and authority. And that's, so it's different value systems. And I often tell this story when I remember when I first qualified as a doctor and I was working with a couple others and one was an English doctor and he got asked to, f- to photocopy some notes by a nurse, right? And he happily did it. But I remember him saying, we would never get asked that at the NHS. Let's <laughs> 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 just have a stronger hierarchical setting. But he didn't interpret that as some slight on being British, he, interp- he was able to interpret that, go, this is sort of Aussie egalitarianism, right? However, the same request, if it was the, a newly arrived Indian doctor, he may have seen through the lens of race. So he might have then seen that as saying, well, you're doing that because I'm an Indian doctor. So it's an example of because we have, A, you're quite a blunt, um, direct style, and also that we have differing attitudes around hierarchy and authority often in the workplace and in other spheres, many ethnic groups then interpret that as some sort of racial slight. And I'm often asked to assess these sort of cases. So I actually think that's one of the most common reasons Australians are called racist, uh, I think unfairly. Mm. And uh, to go back to your question, Nick, certainly institutionally, I've never felt it held back. But having said that, I mean, I had an elite education. You know, I went to probably the most prestigious high school in the country and university likewise. So... So then I've been able to I've been able to embrace the mores of of power or the state whatever you like. But we say I had a turban on and I spoke in an accent. I mean, maybe that would be different. I think p- potentially experience is a bit different. Um, so I don't think I'm the best case in, in that respect. Well, I'm very glad that uh, you've risen to where you are as a, a thinker, an author, and you can produce great books like this in defence of shame. Uh, published, I should say, by our good friends at Connor Court, and a publisher uh, which makes available avenues for important books that other publishers might overlook. Let's put it like that. Yeah, I agree. I think Anthony Capello, the publisher, does an amazing job with minimal resources. I know he's telling me a story through this where he got asked by someone, go, oh, what, who, who's your publicity team? He was saying, um, it's me, and that's it. <laughs> so he, he, what he gets from minimal resources is, is extraordinary. I knew when we started out on this podcast that we'll get to the end thinking we've only just begun to scratch the surface of this, but that's a very good reason for people to go out and buy the book and also a very good reason to have you back on sometime soon. Now, thanks very much, Nick, and thank you to you to the great work you do at Menzies and elsewhere, of course, and the Australian as well. Uh, and I wish uh, people at Menzies all the best. Thank you. You've been listening to the Menzies Research Centre podcast from Sydney, Australia. If you'd like to join the growing number of people who are supporting our work, you can do so by going online and becoming a subscriber from just $10 a month. MenziesRC.org. I'm Nick Cater. Thank you for listening. 